Well, welcome to episode 123 of The Professor and the Hack uh, as we come to our second edition in the first week of the Albanese government. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and with me, the Professor, Peter Van Onsen. G'day, Pete. G'day, mate. Is it just me or do things just feel different? A new government, things are different. I don't necessarily mean that positive or negative. That'll depend on each listener's political preference, but it certainly just feels different. It's one of the things about an old government, isn't it? One that's been around for a long time. We certainly saw that with Howard, Mm. that there were things that were hanging around that he couldn't move on, but which the whole country had moved past, such as saying sorry, for example, and signing Kyoto protocols. And there is that that's coming up. We've got a sense that a whole bunch of things that had kind of no longer been fit for the times can now be quickly swept off the table. I'm thinking of the Billowila family going home just for one thing. Yeah. It is funny because they're things that become so obvious, I think, to a lot of people that they should happen and are probably even obvious to many people within the government of the day. But for whatever reason, you know, having held the line for however long, like John Howard on the apology, you know, it becomes about finding the excuse or the reason not to change because of the the dangers maybe politically of a backflip. But ultimately, when it all happens, it, it ends up being much ado about nothing other than doing the right thing. What I mean by that is John Howard and co were talking about how, oh, it's going to bring on all these sort of legal challenges uh, that could ensue if we apologise to Indigenous Australians. On that front, it was much ado about nothing, nothing eventuated, where it was obviously something much more powerfully, and we only see that with the time that passes since Kevin Rudd's apology, is the act itself and what it means for reconciliation and and what it allows us to move on to next. And, And now, of course, it's the voice to parliament, which Anthony Albanese is championing. It's interesting, too, when one of the things that just struck me since the election is the degree to which Scott Morrison, whose entire shtick was to sell himself as the suburban everyman, failed in that, the degree to which there was a visceral loathing of him, visceral being the word that Dave Sharma, the now ousted MP for Wentworth, lost in the teal tide, described the reaction to Morrison. Mm. And I think that's something that when they're in power, you think, well, they're in power, someone out there must like him and support him even if he's not to everyone's taste. But with the election, you kind of think, actually, pretty much everyone was over him. And you know what also I think, and I think on exactly that theme, because he pulled off the miracle win in 2019 and he then had the pandemic to lift him out of his quagmire in in his response to the bushfires, everyone was a bit gun-shy to predict the end of Scott Morrison or that he was unpopular and that all the things that we saw playing out publicly had changed or cemented the community's attitude towards him. We were all a bit loath to do it because we all thought that the government, more so than him personally, was unpopular in 2019 and wouldn't get re-elected. But it turned out that uh, Bill Shorten was probably more unpopular and that people decided to stick with what they know. But because of that and because the polls were wrong on that, even though the polls ultimately appear to have been right and reflective of a, a, you know, of a community angst towards Scott Morrison and, you know, to a similar extent, his government, we, we just were a bit gun-shy in, in being sure about that, uh, about being certain where the undecided voters would ultimately land. And so, you know, yes, sure, people started to predict that Scott Morrison was more likely to lose than win, but we were all very cautious just in case we were missing something. I mean, I, I will openly admit, and I'm sure you would too, Hugh, that you know, as much as I try to keep an eye on what mainstream voters are thinking and feeling, I'm in the fortunate position not to have the same degree of pressures in my life that they have, you know, and I wasn't sure if if maybe Scott Morrison was some sort of person that they looked to who was able to help them in a way that I didn't appreciate. Yeah, well, as he said, that he's attuned to the realities of outer suburban life where 
real people live real lives. Uh, I mean, that's fundamentally the argument. Yeah. Uh, one of the glories of an election is that it is the ultimate survey. It is the ultimate polling effort. Uh, you no longer have to sort of try to read the tea leaves. There they are. But look, let's move on to the future a little bit, because we plainly, the Liberal Party and the National Party, have got uh, decisions to make in the days ahead. It seems to be a lay down Mazir for Peter Dutton and Susan Lee to take over the leadership of the Liberal Party. How does he go about winning things back? Well, it's a good question. He won't say this publicly, but I think he will be aiming for a two-term strategy to get back into government, always hoping for a one-term turnaround, but aiming for a two-term strategy, but with really important KPIs in defeat in three years' time. As I say, obviously, he won't say this. He'll be looking for, for the win in three years' time. You have to be in it to win it. But I think if he hits certain KPIs, he would then expect and hope to get a second crack a la Kim Beasley, a la Bill Shorten, but unlike both of them, as first-term opposition leaders actually pull it off on the second go. And it looks a little something like this. Labor now looks like it's going to get 76 rather than 77 seats because it looks like the Greens are back in front in the electorate of Brisbane and Labor's not going to catch Andrew Constance in Gilmore. So 76 is the bare majority. It's as slender as it gets before you become a minority government. There's a bunch of teal independents, six in fact, that got elected at the election alongside all the existing independents like Zali Stegel and Helen Haynes and Rebecca Sharkey, Bob Catter for that matter. Now, I think from Peter Dutton's perspective, he's going to try and carve into Labor's majority. His KPI for the next election will be to turn 76 seats into, let's say, 70. If he can win half a dozen seats off Labor and drop their 76 to 70, and if he can then therefore, by definition, lift the coalition's 59 to 65, maybe pick up a teal or two, uh, or you know, an independent or two, suddenly 70 versus 67, well, he's probably not going to win that. It's going to be a minority Labor government re-elected, but Anthony Albanese will be damaged beyond recognition. They will be forced into an alliance with not just the Greens, which will be optically able to be used against Labor, but also with some of those independents who would therefore be forced to nail their colours to the mast if they're going to ultimately vote against the Liberal Party, which is the traditional holder of their seat. And I think that's his strategy. Now, if things go well for him, he can do better than that. Uh, he could even win, you know, if the economy goes badly, for example, and they can mount an argument, or if the boats start up, or if China arcs up and they're seen as stronger on national security. He's got all manner of ways of trying to do better. There is, of course, a huge risk that he does worse. There's no guarantee that oppositions pick up seats. They can go backwards. Mark Latham went backwards. Bill Shorten went backwards. And at state level, we see oppositions who are very close lose badly to governments that get re-elected for a second term. So it can happen. But even if he does less successfully than what I just described and doesn't take half a dozen seats off Labor, but maybe takes two or three, he will still try to argue that he's therefore moving in the right direction. He's denied them their majority. So Denying Labor its majority for a second term is the minimum KPI for him to retain the opposition leadership. And that's going to be pretty easy, surely. You would think so. Because if you look at a whole bunch of things, for one thing, the Greens might nip at Labor and grab a seat here or two. That comes off the majority. But that wouldn't work for him because then he wouldn't be perceived to have done it. WA, Hugh, I think is the key one. WA, WA, exactly. Because they're never going to get, Labor is never going to get that beautiful combination of a Labour Premier with stratospheric popularity. They'll never have a Scott Morrison who went in with Clive Palmer to sue the state for heaven's sake uh, and all the people within it and make himself so on the nose. So you'd think some of those seats would come back. I think that's right. So Peter Dutton, he would, I mean, you know, just to quickly go through it, 
he will certainly hope to hold Queensland, and they have the lion's share of seats. So that's no lay-down misere for him, even though he is a Queenslander, because they have so many of the 30 seats on offer, something like 22 or thereabouts of the 30 seats on offer. It's a tough hold, but he would hope to do it as a Queenslander. New South Wales, the Liberal Party, despite going backwards, still are ahead of Labor in New South Wales, and it is Albo's home state. So that's a risk for him. Victoria, it's hard for the Liberals to do worse, but the challenge for Peter Dutton will be to do any better in Victoria. The same goes for South Australia, for that matter. Tasmania is a real risk, I think, for Peter Dutton, because the nature of Tasmania versus Peter Dutton, even though they often vote on local issues, holding on to Bass and Braddon will be tough for a Peter Dutton, you know, particularly if state factors change between now and three years from now. But WA is the big opportunity for Peter Dutton, because four seats picked up, he would hope to get, if not all of them, half of them back with a change of circumstances. And where the economy is going, the fact that there's going to be GST negotiations for WA, which Labor, you know, they'll have a swelled party room to make the case for WA, but it's a tough one for Treasurer Jim Chalmers to, to give too much ground on. And as you rightly point out, Mark McGowan, his popularity will never be more stratospheric than it is right now, certainly not in three years' time. Uh, and there won't be a pandemic with border lockdowns that play into what well, we assume there won't be. Touch wood with you know parochialism that was attached to that with the High Court challenge that was essentially supported before being ditched by the federal government, much to the angst of West Australians. So that's the Dutton strategy. You know, it's about and and this I guess is the point that we talk about, isn't it? His strategy is about targeting Labor, not targeting the Teals. He will target the Teals with their decision making if they back a Labor minority government in the aftermath of the next election. And he'll hope to select, I imagine, some very good candidates here and there who he can convince to take on the Teals to maybe jag a few seats. But in a sort of battle sense, political battle sense, he will very much be taking on the Labor Party directly in front of him rather than fighting on the edges against the Teals. So what kind of Dutton are we going to see? Are we going to see this man that we're assured by his wife is not a monster, that he's, uh, you know, this loving, kind personable character, or are we going to see the kind of race-baiting nasty who goes on about African gangs to try to get a political advantage in the Victorian state election, the voters of Victoria seeing through it and putting a swing against the Liberal Party? You know, I, I've got to say, I'm a defence conservative. I'm fiscally mildly conservative. I'm socially kind of, yeah, you know, I'll go with anything sort of thing. But I can't stand a racist. I cannot stand a racist. Mm. And anyone who dog whistles race like that, to my mind, is despicable. I, I've, you know, I can't put it in too higher than that. Oh no, I, 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 I hear you, Hugh. I, I don't want to say he's despicable, but, but he, he did it, and he walked out on the bloody saying sorry. He has deliberately positioned himself to seek the votes of people who have, in my view, an intolerable aspect towards racism and otherness, othering. And Hugh, uh, and well said with what you've just said, and your passion is both compelling, but also something that, that I by and large agree with. And I say that despite the fact that at a personal level, I've always gotten on quite well with Peter Dutton. And here is the key to answer what you're saying. He is going to have to not only tone that down, but do some sort of come to Jesus moment. He's going to have to do some version of a mea culpa. He did it on the apology when he was trying to run. Uh, it was quite late, let's be honest, because he walked out on the apology in 2007. And then it was many years later when he was hoping to take over from Malcolm Turnbull that he finally did his mea culpa for having done so. He's going to have to do a version of what John Howard did in the wake of his anti-Asian immigration remarks, which he then walked back from subsequently during his wilderness years in a, in a bid to rebuild his reputation 
to make himself a viable alternative prime minister. Now, it's not precisely analogous because, as I recall, John Howard made those remarks when he was opposition leader and then walked away from it during the course of his wilderness years. And I think Philip Ruddock led the charge internally of the Liberal Party in crossing the floor and denouncing what John Howard did. And I actually think it is on a grander scale some of what Peter Dutton has said and done, even if it's less overt in dog whistling to what John Howard did in that example of Asian immigration. It's almost more despicable, but less overt would be the way that I would describe it. But he has to do something on that front. So, so, so what's, what's the line? Are you, look, I was a racist then, but I'm not a racist now. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to throw black people under the bus. Really, I'm willing to throw black people under the bus for an electoral advantage, but I won't do it anymore. Well, this is the problem. What you've just said is why I don't actually have the answer to how he does it. But the, the power with which you're saying it is why I think he has to try and do something. And he may not be able to convince everyone, but he needs to convince some people. So, you know, you represent, let's say, if there are 20 of you in a room, Hugh, feeling the way you do with different degrees of passion, but feeling the way you do nonetheless, he won't win all 20 over, but he needs to win a quotient of that room or else he is no chance of winning an election. And some of you, and this was the case with John Howard, right? John Howard managed to win some people over. He didn't win everyone over. There were people by the end of John Howard's prime ministership who felt as angry, particularly with some of his actions, by the way, during the prime ministership, as angry, if not more, because of his subsequent success from what was his version of the mea culpa from his earlier race baiting, and even what he did through MV Tampa, for example, and and through how he uh, tried to deal with Pauline Hanson and all the rest of it. But he did, of those 20 people in the room, he won a sizable chunk over and convinced them that he'd changed without losing others. And I don't mean the racists, I mean without losing other chunks of the mainstream who think he's disingenuous and therefore don't trust him for the shift. Now, Peter Dutton has to do some version of that. I don't have the answer to how he does it, but he has to do it in a way that's credible and accepts he won't win everyone over, but he does have to win some over. And it's going to be a delicate dance for him. The only thing in his favor, I think, about these sort of moves is that at that personal level, He has proven himself to be a strong campaigner. Now, you can't meet everyone as opposition leader or prime minister around the country, but his seat of Dixon, he has managed to win what is essentially a Labor electorate for eight elections in a row when he should have lost it every time. And most of us, me included, frankly, you'll be unsurprised, Hugh, to know that I've made a a bad prediction or two, but me included, you know, I have watched that seat with demographic changes as well as redistributions that have been against Peter Dutton. And I've watched that seat and time and time again predicted that he wasn't going to hold it because he shouldn't have held it. Well, well he thought he wasn't going to hold it. He tried to get out of it at one stage. Well, that's true. He tried to get the hell out of there, didn't he, with the, the pre-selection bid to go across to McPherson, which was against Karen Andrews. No love lost between those two. No surprise that Susan Lee uh, is his running mate rather than Karen Andrews as the two most senior females in the lower house. I mean, it makes more sense for it to be Susan Lee. She's regional and she's New South Wales, but... But, I don't want to cut off your flow on that, but Susan Lee spent time on the back bench because she was found to have breached ministerial principles. Which is going to be interesting in the context of an ICAC because you can bet, Hugh, that Labor will make something of that. They will try, and not necessarily unfairly, to tar and feather Susan Lee very quickly, and that will be happening at the same time that she is there to soften Peter Dutton as having a female deputy, which they need, having not obviously had one in the lower house since Julie Bishop. So that that will be one thing that'll be interesting to watch, but they'll go after Peter Dutton as well. 
you know, there's always a risk that when the federal ICAC comes in, that it ends up rebounding on the government that brings it in. That has been a, a thing that has happened at state level. We've seen, you know, Nick Reiner brought it in and it brought him down. And there are other examples akin to that. But here, that's always a longer term risk for Labor in government federally over the coming years. In the short term, they'll be able to use it on the floor of parliament, talk about what it may or may not have done in relation to decisions made by Peter Dutton. You know, I mean, the the au pair and everything else. I mean, this will be a lightning rod for Labor in the short term. It's whether come the next election, it has turned around like a boomerang and rebounded on them as a result of, of its oversight. Which some liberals believe will be how it will work and why they didn't bring it in. Welcome back. This is episode 123 of The Professor and the Hack. Thanks for staying with us, PVO. Uh, Let's look quickly at the Nationals. This has become a more interesting race, hasn't it? Yeah. Look, it's absolutely fascinating to me because on the one hand, Barnaby Joyce should be a lock to hold on to the National Party leadership. When the Liberals went careering backwards and losing seats, not just to Labor, but to the Teals as well, the Nationals didn't lose a seat. They held all the seats. And it's not like they already had a small quotient of seats. They already had a strong result. They held their seats at the previous election uh, when Scott Morrison won. But the one before that in 2016, the Liberals also went careering backwards under Malcolm Turnbull with a whole bunch of seats lost to Labor as a result of all those seats won back by Tony Abbott falling away. And at that election, Barnaby Joyce also held the line, which is what saved Malcolm Turnbull's majority, his wafer-thin majority of, of one. So at two out of the last three elections, the Nationals have not only, well, at all three elections, the Nationals have held the line, but at two of the last three, you've had the Liberal Party imploding and losing roughly a dozen seats at each election, all up two dozen seats. Yet the Nationals have held the line at two of those elections under Barnaby Joyce's leadership. So they, in a sense, he should be safe as a leader, but he is seen as yesterday's man. He does have controversy around him. The National Party room is divided. He is a Queenslander, essentially, even though he represents a New South Wales seat, and they don't need a Queenslander in the LNP up there because they've now got Peter Dutton. He's seen as part of the sort of unpopular Scott Morrison brigade, and he was seen, rightly or wrongly, to have cost the Liberal Party votes in Liberal seats, even though he held the line in the National Party seats. You've got Darren Chester running against him as, as a total moderate out of Victoria in National Party terms, and you know you would think he's unlikely to succeed because he's pondered running before and, and not even put his hand up in the end because he had he had too few votes. I might like to see Darren Chester in there. I think he was a, you know, everyone would agree, most people would agree that he's been a pretty good minister. But I think the compromise candidate could end up being the deputy David Littleproud who comes through the middle. If they don't keep Joyce, that is, and if he gets treated unfairly in the context of his electoral success, you would think that David Littleproud could be the person to step into the breach. Although another Queenslander, another Queenslander. Another Queenslander, and that is that is his biggest dilemma, right? Because then you've got a Queenslander when you've already got a Liberal leader as a Queenslander. Two out of Queensland isn't necessarily ideal, but David Littleproud cuts a different figure to Barnaby Joyce. You know, he's much more eloquent and much more polished, even though his views aren't actually that different, quite frankly, from Barnaby Joyce's. But wouldn't it be ironic, Hugh, that, you know, if Barnaby Joyce loses his position after electoral success, when he's regained it, arguably, when he shouldn't have at different points in time, and no one's talking about Michael McCormick at this stage, at least as an alternative, you know, the the world is a strange place. 
And also, what does Barnaby Joyce do? He's just been re-elected. Does he sit and say, yes, I'm yesterday's man. I'll sit here quietly on the back benches or I'll, I'll quit and cause a by-election in New England and go off and, you know, tend to his brood? Or does he sit there, as he's done in the past, fulminating, getting redder and redder in the face, plotting a return, which uh, is not what the National Party would hope for? Well, who knows, right? And opposition is so tumultuous. Any of the above uh, potential outcomes, I would suggest, He's certainly not going to be happy having fought so hard to get himself back into the leadership to then hold the line at the election to lose the leadership. You can bet that he's going to be pretty outspoken, one would think. He's also made the point in the past that because of his two family arrangements, he's made this point to me on the record, he's strapped for cash on a backbencher's wage. That won't get him an enormous amount of sympathy out in real people land. Mm. But being a leader of a party brings a, a cash lift. And, uh, you know, he, he may for among his many motivations, quite apart from relevance deprivation syndrome, if he's not the leader of the party, you know, the cash is handy. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he's got, apart from, as you say, his first family, he's now got two very young children in his second family arrangement. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what else he does if he steps out of politics to ameliorate that declined income, notwithstanding if it was even from backbencher to non-parliamentarian. He's not on the old super scheme because he came in at the 2004 election in the Queensland Senate originally as the unexpected victorious senator in the wake of Mark Latham's disastrous result. And by then, just the pension scheme, the old pension scheme had been abolished by John Howard because of Mark Latham's urgings ahead of that election. so Well, we, we should say that the people in Weatherboard and Iron, who are the ones who he says he represents, will probably not shed too much of a tear for a bloke who's not on the <laughs> former parliamentary scheme. And- By the way, on that though, Hugh, I don't like the fact that at the very least, a former prime minister doesn't get an annuated pension. Look at Scott Morrison. Okay, fine. He's sitting on the back bench. But if he left parliament, he would be, Malcolm Turnbull doesn't count because he's so wealthy. And Malcolm Turnbull is officially the first Australian prime minister not to be eligible for the annuated super scheme of an ex-politician slash prime minister, but neither would Scott Morrison be. So you could have a situation where you've got a guy in his first half 50s leaving the prime ministership whose primary skill is marketing from his pre-parliamentary career who has to go off and earn a crust to try to, you know, continue to feed his family and maintain his sort of lifestyle. Personally, I'd rather an ex-prime minister. I can see why you don't have it across all MPs. I can see the argument for having it, but I can also see the argument not to. But when it comes to a prime minister, Possibly you extend it to cabinet ministers as well, but certainly an ex-leader of a nation. I think that it's in the nation's best interest to keep paying them to avoid them having to demean the office potentially with their subsequent employment. So many of them. How do we afford them all? In the US, of course, they go off and get these massive multi-million dollar book contracts. (laughs) Get someone else to write it, basically, but you get these huge amounts of money, but that's not a superannuation scheme available to Australians. I can tell you from experience, Hugh, no one wants to buy a book about Scott Morrison. Yeah. (laughs) Especially when you title it, How Good Is Scott Morrison? That was a terrible marketing decision. I'm not not attacking the publishers any more than I'm attacking myself or my co-author for that choice, but we thought people would see the irony in us using his how good is rhetoric, putting a question mark after it we thought would be enough. But I I can picture left of center voters walking past that in the bookstore thinking it was us actually saying how good is Scott Morrison. If they read the book, oh my God, they would know we were not saying he's good. Mate, you should have got Scott Morrison as a marketing consultant on it. Perhaps uh, Scott (laughs) Morrison, where the bloody hell are you? Might have been a useful one. But um, yeah, look, quickly, we spent all this time talking about the coalition and its various forms and difficulties. 
I'm at the government. We can see clearly what the initial goals are to do. One is to do this reset across the Pacific, the Asia Pacific, Albanese off to the quad, Penny Wong on a big tour around. Yep. God knows it is absolutely active space now with the Chinese foreigners floating around in there. But also from Jim Chalmers, a clear signal early that uh, he says there are, you know, coded language, there are nasties found in the budget. How this has managed to avoid the charter budget, honestly, I don't know, but but he's already starting to tamp down expectations for what Labour will do, and particularly the time frame in which Labour will keep its promises because of the state of the economy. Is this normal post-election stuff or disingenuous in nature, or is it true? Look, it's all depressing one way or the other, whether it's true or whether it's disingenuous. Either way, I think we're facing a scenario where this is a new government always get a small window to do big things, okay? And this government is partly hamstrung by its small target strategy. Uh, it's partly hamstrung by the finances and the books. And ultimately, what I think it's going to do is it's going to do some important symbolic things. Some of them will be controversial, but they'll be important. I mean, even as little as the Biluella family getting returned is an important symbolic step. The voice to parliament is a bigger, important symbolic step, but it also has practical debate to be had around it. It will do these sort of things, okay? It'll change some of the national culture where I think it'll return this notion of egalitarianism culturally. But when you come to policy structures to put the meat on the bones of what it can change, it, it, culturally too, obviously, the Independent Commission Against Corruption at the federal level will be important, both practically but also symbolically, right? So it'll do those sort of things, the things that don't cost you anything fiscally, but they mean a lot for a lot of people emotionally, and they have some practical value. Where it gets harder is first-term governments have traditionally also done some big reforms that are somewhat controversial and can be expensive, even if it's short-term expense for long-term fiscal benefit. That's the hard stuff that I don't have a lot of faith that this government's going to be able to pursue. Now, I've had long chats, actually, to Jim Chalmers about this on and off the record, just to help me with my understanding. And he disputes this. You know, He believes that a lot of the sh shifts that they're making around skills training, for example, or childcare will have an impact that will be reforming by nature and significant. You're making the point quite rightly, Hugh, that some of that might even be curtailed in the short term or spread out because of its cost. That would be a real dampener from this government. But even if they go running down that path, I'm of the view that it's still not enough because we need profound reforms to the tax system to make it more sustainable. We need to tax wealth more than income. But they're not going to tax wealth because they've said other than multinational increases of tax, we won't be putting up taxes. It would be a big call in the modern world of politics, wouldn't it, to break those sort of tax-based promises against an opposition leader like Dutton in the era where there's gotcha journalism and the media don't accept that when circumstances change, you have to change your actions in the John Maynard Keynes variety. It doesn't work like that anymore. So long story short, Hugh, I think that this government will do much of what it said but if it steps outside of its lane, even just delaying some of what it said, much less doing things it all but committed not to do, that's when politics gets interesting in this country. But it needs to do some version of all of that because the pressures afoot are so great. There are some legal questions on the desk of the incoming Attorney General Mark Dreyfus. Among them, will the government discontinue what I think are the persecutions of uh, Bernard Caleri, who is the lawyer for in the Witness K matter, who revealed that uh, we had spied on uh, East Timor for commercial gain, essentially, over oil and gas. 
Also, we have uh, Richard Boyle, who is the tax office whistleblower, who's being pursued with criminal actions that could leave him in jail, notionally, for over 100 years, people who did good things in announcing you know, problems in the system that have since been fixed, and yet they're being punished. David McBride, who talked about war crimes in Afghanistan. Is it possible, do you think, for the Attorney General to discontinue these actions in court? And should he? It's certainly possible. Whether he will is another matter. Should he? Look, my view is yes, but like anyone, I guess, talking about this, because of the bloody secrecy surrounding it, we don't have all the facts, do we, to be able to know whether or not there is something to this or not. My biggest criticism of this, of all of these instances, starts with the secrecy surrounding what is going on. You know, the the lack of information to be able to even make an educated assessment on the facts of the case against some or slash all of these men is my first concern about the process. Perhaps were that all open and transparent, I would be more comfortable with the state pursuing charges against one or some of them, but it falls over for me at first principle. The lack of openness about it in the name of secrecy is not the way that I think a legal system should work in a democracy. Do I think that the Labor Party will do something? Yes, I do, but I wouldn't do it as a blanket universal something in all those cases, as well as a couple of others that exist. I think Kaliri's case is probably the one that is most likely to see a change of direction with a new government. Let's hope. And just very quickly, Josh Frydenberg, of course, licking his wounds. Will he be back, do you think? I think he certainly wants to come back. He's, you know, 50 or thereabouts, and he sees himself, as he said on the night, as having a long political career ahead of him if he wants it. It's very hard to come back when you get knocked out of parliament, but it's not impossible, and it has happened before. But he will have to accept that it's not as simple as come back and take up where you left off. Getting knocked out of parliament means that there is a bit of a a ladder to climb, even if he can get himself back into parliament. In majority terms, it's most people who get knocked out and try to come back don't ever make it back. Josh is a force of nature, (laughs) whatever you think of him. So he will be giving it as good a shot as anyone. So he certainly, that is certainly his aim. But he's up against now a Teal who will have uh, had three years to dig herself in and sandbag that seat. Exactly. And does he even stay there, Hugh? Um, or does I mean, it's a catch-22, isn't it? Because at one sense, he has to run in Kuyong because it's his electoral backyard. It's a blue ribbon liberal seat and all the rest of it. And he looks like he's running if he doesn't. But it's a hard one to win back because the Teal independent, she's well qualified on paper. She would have to do something to diminish herself because three years in office will only help. Or he tries for the Senate, I guess. But, but that's not why he's coming back, Hugh. You know that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Great to talk to you as always, PVO. We'll talk again next week. Cheers, mate. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.